So Hi Felicia is a podcast that I started with the idea of having conversations on a variety of topics, trying to do a deep dive, um, maybe knowing something about the person, maybe not. Um, one of my guilty pleasures is um, Criminal Minds and the team at the BAU, and they always profile a serial killer or an unsub by the fact that, that they usually start in a geographical location that's comfortable to them. So I, I do do that. So I am using friends and family and friends of friends and Facebook friends, for folks who are basically in my sphere at first, to interview and have some conversations. Because I've always been curious about um, you know, where people come from, what their interests are, and I get really jazzed about talking to someone who's really enthusiastic about a subject that maybe I know a little bit about, maybe I know nothing about. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with my different guests, and um, please feel free to comment, send questions, um, or send suggestions for guests that you think might be interested uh, to be on Hi Felicia. Cambridge and Malden spending much of her adolescences in both cities. Her work has been featured in Medium.com, which she's going to talk to us about. She is now working on our first novel, which chronicles a young second-generation Haitian woman looking back upon the relationships of her mother and her aunts and how witnessing their experiences shaped her understanding of intimacy, sexuality, and devotion. She currently teaches middle school English literature and is a mother to one son, several plants and ladybugs you can follow her on instagram which i highly suggest you do because that is how i follow her <laughs> she is writer underscore bay b-a-e underscore v-v where she posts weekly book recommendations and updates on her writing life <laughs> okay so we're gonna say welcome to the program viola vilma this is hi felicia podcast and i am your host felicia ryan <laughs> i'm so excited to have my first guest on today, who is Viola Vilma. I don't know why I said first guest, because you're my only <laughs> guest on today. But welcome to my podcast. Oh, thank you so much. That was such a lovely and warm welcome. Oh, good. And uh, I know Viola because she was in the writers group, mm -hmm. not this yeah, past probably. season, but the season before. And I, I was saying to her before we got on air that I had always appreciated, one, the voice that she brings as a writer, but also the voice that she brings as... I, I think of the group as sort of a collaboration and the mm. feedback you always gave was um, really about being true as a writer mm -hmm. with a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I did really enjoy our time with the collective. Um, I loved being able to, you know, read and explore different work, work that was different from my own. Mm -hmm. And we're essentially all a product of our, our writing, even though we, I think majority of us were writing fiction yeah, for the most yeah, part. Yeah. But it was essentially an extension of our own experiences and what shaped us and being able to come together in that way. And it was just a really lovely time. That was when I developed um, the novel and began, you know, my 
first draft on it was through the group. So I just immensely, immensely and so much gratitude to all of you. <laughs> and because uh, she was one of the writers that we workshopped last year, she brought her <laughs> her posse, her crowd, yeah. her extended family. So, the whole gang. <laughs> so they were enthusiastic supporters. Oh, they're, they're wonderful. In the audience. <laughs> and they very generously listened to not just Viola, but they listened to everybody. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and I think it was your niece that was yeah, the my one. sister. Yeah, Sis- my little sister Sophie. Yeah. She, she came out <laughs> yeah. and to talk about her uh, how she experienced one of the pieces that was read. So, mm-hmm. which happened to be mine, and I mm-hmm. so appreciated having a young girl talk to me <laughs> about what they thought my work was about and how it touched them. So. Yeah, she's wonderful. Hi, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> she's a That's lovely young woman. So. <laughs> Yeah. So um, I thought what we could do today is we could talk a little bit about um, your you as a writer. And um, I know you had mentioned in your bio that you just is it just recent this to this year that you published some pieces on Medium? Yes, I did. So I um, just got on Medium and I published um, two pieces. Uh, the first I published based on Ladybugs because I um, am a collector of uh, Ladybugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the piece is basically about um, the etymology and the history of um, Ladybugs as, as an insect and as a species and how um, they help with um, the cultivation of crops. And when they appear, um, they can actually be a good thing because they eat certain parasites that are harmful Mm -hmm. to crops Um, but in like the cultural sense they're very uh, they're they're sort of a a magical figure in that they a lot of people attribute them to good luck you know lady luck ladybug luck Um, so I sort of connected that to my own childhood and how um, you know the sort of the trajectory of me trajectory of my life began to change when we had ladybugs appear in our garden in the home that I grew up in. And I had just a great, wonderful uh, English teacher who um, was really supportive of my love for reading and writing. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I began to write little short stories at 14 years old. And um, just that whole time period when the ladybugs appeared in the house was when I really started to see myself as, you know, something other than just a specific uh, role, like being a lawyer or a Mm -hmm. doctor which is many the story of many immigrant children are being right, raised to be. Right. Um, my parents really wanted me to be a lawyer. Um, but um, I could see how you would have been a really good lawyer. Yeah. Maybe not what you're I'm very persistent. I know that. But you're very articulate, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, one of those uh, just that, 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 that spring of seeing them and, you know, looking back on that, I recounted that in that particular mm. piece and just the, you know, the, the, um, the symbol that ladybugs can yeah. be. Yeah. this great symbol of good luck. And then the other piece is about the anti-star. Um, I sort of did a piece on, um, it, it's called uh, the... Um the uh, anti the oh, what's the name of it? I'm sorry, I'm forgetting. <laughs> anti hero. Uh, it's the piece. The second piece is called the art of anonymity. Yes, okay. there you go. <laughs> and that's about um, it's about the the musical artist her, but it's also about over time how um, the sort of the artist or the person that's creating a particular piece. Um, sort of finds ways to either use like a, a suedo name or um, or an alias mm. in order to um, 
basically make the work be a piece of its own as opposed to, you know, overshadowing it with their identity. Mm. Um, so I talked about her, but I also talked about Essie Hinton, who used mm. um, acronyms for her yeah. first name so that people didn't know whether she was a male or female because she predominantly wrote about, um, you know, male characters um, and also talked about Elena Ferranti, who's one of my favorite writers, but I have no idea what her face looks like. Yeah. <laughs> and she has written a ton of just great, great literature that's been translated from Italian into English and it's called The Ferrante Fever because her um, novels, which I'm going to mention later, the New Neapolitan novels, have sold a ton of copies all over the world. Um, I think there's a documentary that came out about it too um, and just about her uh, work being so famous and prolific mm. and no one knowing who she is. <laughs> yeah. And it's just this um, this idea that we, that our work can speak for itself and stand on its own. Right. And that's a way that we can sort of project ourselves in the art yeah. as opposed to, you know, seeing the, you know, the, the identity synonymous, like, you know, the Lady Gaga and Beyonce, right. where like their, their faces are as prolific as their work, but yeah. instead you have these artists whose work exceeds in is more prolific than their face. We never, we don't really know what they do, who they're yeah. dating, what they like to eat, yeah. where they live, anything like that. So it sort of is like this interesting, um, you know, way of, of 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 approaching fame, and that's what the second work is about on Medium. It's so mm-hmm. it's such an interesting question mm-hmm. too for a writer themselves because um, you and I both write mm-hmm. nonfiction. Mine has got a little more fantastical stuff in mm-hmm. it. I think yours is, yeah, is more sort sort more pure memoir Mm -hmm. but like how much of it um how much of it do you reveal of yourself in it Mm -hmm. in the work it's like what do you keep and what do you put in that's always a struggle yeah and then how much of it is uh, who you are as a woman who Mm -hmm. you are in your family Mm -hmm. what stories are you telling about other family members Yes, yes and then imagine if you did that anonymously mm-hmm. so we didn't know what you look like or what your name was right like we could be going to the same laundromat and not know of it <laughs> you yeah. know my your work is like it's so effective to me and right. not even know that you exist with me or that right. you know these are people that you know might be in my midst it's a very fascinating um could you ever do it take. that way would you ever have- i i think Possibly. I've thought about it just because Mm. I do have a discomfort with being recognized Mm. too much when I'm not planning it. (laughs) And I talk about that in the article, too, where it's like, um, you know, basically, if I'm not dressed in the way that I would like, like I was just sort of running out of the house to pick up dry cleaning or coffee or something and running into somebody that, you know, I might um, not expect to or may have wanted to be dressed a little nicer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my, you know, the generational stuff coming out, like my grandmother saying, you know, oh, you always want to be out with, you know, Mm -hmm. a good pair of pantyhose and a nice Mm -hmm. pair of shoes and no runs and that kind of thing. So um, I think if I... If, for example, if my work were to become um, on that level, like mm-hmm. a Joseph Carroll or, or a Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. I think I would have issue with going to Target and not being able to just shop and being recognized right. by complete strangers. I right, think that right, would be right. a bit jarring for me. So it would be something I'd consider. But I do like, you know, a bit of fame when I'm ready for it. <laughs> One of the guests that you should listen to mm-hmm. the podcast is Sharona Jacobs. Oh, yes. So she is a photographer. 
who photographs writers for their like jackets, Ooh, their back jackets I and stuff. So she's she's local, and mm-hmm. we talked a lot about photography. But she talked about using sort of her psychology background and mm-hmm. and how she photographs people, and the photographs that she takes are gorgeous, oh, like really gorgeous, awesome. and. Um, not necessarily knowing a ton about some of the writers on there or some of the mm-hmm. uh, she she also uh, photographs CEOs mm-hmm. but she talked a lot about like I have a curiosity about what that person is but I feel like you're giving me some of the essence of who they are mm-hmm. in that photograph I see, I see. Um, mm-hmm. so again like mm-hmm. I personally think if I am gonna have my picture taken by a photographer for the back cover of my book's jacket. I want to have her take it. <laughs> I want I know her too. Her. I think I'm going to call her. <laughs> but she's really amazing with this eye, with this like sort of loving curiosity that she provides mm. through her lens, but also the idea that having your picture taken or your essence captured is a super uncomfortable thing. Mm. But it's a super uncomfortable thing for writers mm. as well. Yes. Because <laughs> we, be. want, we want, like you said, we want the work to speak for itself. Yes. Um, one of the things that I think I feel like this came up in some of the workshops that you and I participated in with mm-hmm. the writers group mm-hmm. was the idea of the writer not having to provide what the meaning should be, but that you as the reader get yes. to decide what that meaning is. You can sort of connect the dots in your own way and your own interpretation. And right. that's what I teach my students, too, is that, you know, we could read the two people could read the same piece of work, but take different things from it yeah. and different things resonate with them in different ways. And both are right. And that's the beauty of literature, really. So, yeah, that definitely, um, you know, was the case. That's something we talked about in the in the sh- in the workshop and all of that, being able to have those diverse. Um, and do you worry at all where you're writing nonfiction that uh, what you write would be misunderstood? Um, I do misunderstood in the sense that that is a big concern of mine with my work is that. Uh, I not so much with my nonfiction, but with my fiction, I do want people to separate the character from the writer or from yeah. the culture yeah, yeah, um, yeah, because I feel even as a woman of color a lot of the times that there is a lot of pressure for you to be sort of the best example of the culture and if that particular yeah. character is flawed in some way then that is um not only might be misinterpreted as well. I, I remember there was something with um, I think her name is, if I'm pronouncing it right, Chinua Echebe, who wrote Americana, mm-hmm. and she had been um, someone had asked her and when she was at a speaking engagement and had said, you know, oh, I was reading your piece and. Um, does it mean that because this particular situation happened to a character and they were the victim of abuse, that that is uh, how Nigerian marriages are or something mm-hmm. to that effect? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she was basically saying, you know, I read American Psycho and <laughs> that, and it was this funny little line about right. that. And I just remember, uh, you know, as I'm, uh, you know, developing my work, not wanting to be misres- mis- misrepresented in that right, way and right, that my right. characters are allowed to be flawed or allowed to be um, you know, they're not the epitome or the example of what it means to be a Haitian woman or what it right. means to be a woman or a black right. woman or an artist. So right. I definitely want, you know, my work to just sort of speak for itself. And Right. Yeah. And how do you not take up that mantle? Like, because there, there's going to be people who may be enthusiastic readers or followers or even questioners of mm-hmm. your work and say, does it represent that thing? Like, how do you how do you not take up that man- mantle? It's hard. 
weird. It's like yeah. you kind of, um, I sort of see it as your child. And, yeah. you know, once I had my son, um, he's two now, but I know that there's going to be a time where he is going to be out of my sphere and have yeah. to navigate the world on his own. And I feel the same way about my work is that once yeah. it's out and published, it kind of takes on a life of its own good or bad. So whether right. people um, find the work offensive or find the work particularly jarring or find the work that they're absolutely in love with it, right. or even times it might exceed expectations and then everything subsequent afterwards <laughs> holds up to that, you know, it's like, it is what it is. Right. It's out in the universe. It no longer belongs to me anymore. Right. Um, so I definitely have to um, free myself of that pressure and thinking about that or being anxious about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> do you, um, do you, well, I think this is a good time. Do you, do, I know you brought a piece that you'd like to, oh, yes, I asked so you to share. So would you like to set it up and just tell us what we're going to hear? And yeah. this is from your novel? Yes, okay. this is from my novel. So I am uh, working on a book now that was, as um, you mentioned in the, um, in my lovely bio. Mm. <laughs> I think I want to frame it. <laughs> um, I think you did so, a good job yeah. with it. Oh, it's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I, uh, I'm working on a book now which is uh, about a young woman named Francoise who is um, sort of, the, or at least the first half of the book is her looking back at the relationships um, of her mother and her mother's two sisters. Um, the thing with uh, Haitian people that I notice in many states, not only here in Massachusetts, but that once one moves to a particular neighborhood, they'll usually have two or other or more relatives that will buy homes in the same neighborhood. Mm. Or sometimes like they'll get an apartment and then they'll have several other relatives that also come to that apartment and mm -hmm. like, you know, they sort of live in this sort of house share together mm -hmm. in some way. Um, or it, sometimes it's all under the same roof, depending on economically where they are. Yeah. Um, so in this book, the the narrator, Francoise, lives with her mother, who's a teacher. Um, and she also has her mother's sisters who live down the street um, in their own respective houses. Um each, she basically learns um, from them their different relationships. Her mother is a single mother and is mm -hmm. no longer with the narrator's father. Um, but the other two aunts are, are both married. Um, one of them is married to a professor and the other one is married to a more of a businessman um, and basically learns through their relationships and through their marriages and, and, and infidelities and mistakes and, mm -hmm. um, and all of that, how uh, relationships are mm -hmm. um, pertaining to them and how it sort of shapes her understanding of herself as a woman, even her own mother's um, relationships as well. Um, and then the second half of the book is her as an adult after um, a tragedy has occurred, with, occurred within the family um, and her basically looking back on that particular summer when she turned 15. Um, it starts with one of her uncles having had an affair with a woman in Haiti mm -hmm. and having uh, impregnated the woman. But then, you know, he wants to do, do this noble thing and bring the child to the America to, you know, for mm -hmm. a better life. But as you know, when you do um, applications for residency and green cards, you have to take a paternity test for a child that you're claiming to be yours. Really? And it turns out the child was not his. <laughs> so that's where the book begins. And she's sort of looking back on what occurred that year. Um, and then, you know, the, the other half of the book is her as an adult sort mm -hmm. of navigating things. And she's a photographer. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of different things. But this particular... Um, part that I'm going to read is uh, a scene that takes place when the uh, main character, Francoise, her mother, and the aunts throw her uh, a 16th birthday party. And um, 
her mother basically has an interest in, or how it starts is there's a a young sort of Barack Obama-esque gentleman that's from the neighborhood. Um, Him and his wife live there and he runs for office. He's an elderman. He tries to run for for mayor, but he's sort of this, um, the great hope in the Haitian community Mm. because he's been educated in the United States and is a second generation Haitian. Mm. He's articulate. He's good looking. He's, you know, um, you know, successful. Mm -hmm. And so she begins to see that her mother and him sort of cultivate a kind of friendship that she's really concerned about Mm -hmm. or not even concerned, just curious and, um, you know, not really liking too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, this particular scene is when he um, arrives at the party, and I'll just, um, I guess, start yeah, reading that part. Read it, okay. <laughs> when Mr. Renoir came, a subtle hush ascended the room as people's gaze and smiles ascended onto him as if he were a kind of celebrity. He greeted everyone who came in his path, acknowledging them quickly, while is making his way to where I stood at the entryway between the living room and the den, drinking from a glass I had found abandoned in the kitchen. The beverage was heavy on alcohol and light on whatever juice it had been mixed with, and it did its job of loosening my inhibitions. Relaxing my anxieties, my sense of heightened awareness was at bay. Until Mr. Renoir arrived, I thought at first to take the drink from me. Instead, he handed me my gift, wrapped in a gold box, held tightly by a silk ribbon. I kissed him in salutation, cheek to cheek, and thanked him, adding it to the pile of others. Open it, he said, with a plastered smile on his face, a grin of anticipation, presuming I would like it. I looked at my mother, who stood beside Aunt Jocelyn, whispering into her ear and her eyes traveling to the top and bottom of Mr. Renaud's form. Inside the gold box was another box, velvet and layered and levered on a hinge that I had to apply a deal of pressure to open and keep from snapping shut. And inside, sitting on a leather pillow, was a gold bangle with a frosting on the surface that made it twinkle under the low light. I felt a pressure in my chest and knew that such a gift carried a great deal of significance beyond its purpose, its visage, and the effect it had over the room was not only because it was beautiful, which it was, but also its objective was to make an impression on my mother. To suggest that it wasn't it wasn't only her or her body that mattered to him, but also the things that mattered most to her, like me and the spoils like a bracelet. Thank you, I said softly, snapping it shut. You should wear it, Lazarus said, leaning his chin into my shoulder. I looked at him from a vantage point that the others couldn't see, and he coiled away from me, pressing his back into the wall. Mr. Renoir grabbed my forearm in both of his hands and leaned it kissed. And, and leaned in, kissing me on both cheeks. Happy birthday, beautiful. He then went straight to the group my mother was clustered in, kissing her on the cheek, and remained there, his lips moving slowly in a whisper. Whatever he said made my mother's stoic posture ease, and her back curled into him. The hand she had positioned on her hip possessively fell away and wrapped around her, se- her midsection like a vine. She stepped away from him and rolled her eyes, but her lips were turned up in a way as if to resist a grin. My mother belonged to Mr. Renoir in a way that I was only beginning to understand that night, how so completely a person can belong to another. A song came on that the adults recognized, even my grandmother, threw her arms up to where she was sitting to gyrate her hips in her seat. My mother and a few of 
the women joined her in a dance at the center of the living room, one with steps and a coordination they must have learned from when they were children back home. My mother's hips were moving in a seductive sort of way, like the movement of a snake, and her voice roared with an open-mouthed laughter, the expansion of which was wide as if catching air. Her tongue was pink and pulsing in her mouth, and her lips were made up with a deep rouged blush that somehow heightened every expression assumed on her face. It was not anger that I felt or even jealousy that night while watching my mother dancing as she captured the attention of everyone in the room and adoring glances from the other couples dancing alongside of her. I felt a trepidation, a knowing that inside my mother was a separate woman. The same hands she used to comb my hair and dry my tears was used for other things in other ways that at the time I knew little of. While I saw her hair as this dense valley of strands and tufts that I played with, a man would gaze at her mane that lay around her face and shoulders like a lion's collar. They would see her hair as, a, as more an aesthetic to accentuate the overall thing that was her body. Suddenly, I felt the sadness and disappointment that comes once a night has arrived that you were looking forward to, but in the moment wanted desperately to be over. Nurmikita Pa began to play, a salsa version, and everyone left the dance floor except for my mother, whose exit was intercepted by Mr. Renoir's hand. He snatched it quickly with a delicate flourish that was commanding but inconspicuous, and my mother followed him as the melody continued. Continued. He turned her around and they fell naturally in step, their hips very close and moving as if Mary as if a mirror to each other. I knew my mother was a wonderful dancer, but it seemed her skill was beyond practice experience or that maybe her skill wasn't even learned, but a part of her nature. Miss Renoir led my mother in such a way as if he knew exactly how her body would move, how each inflection would appear, and they didn't gaze at their feet or each other, but straight into the opposing vantage points of each other. When the melody quickened, they moved easily with it and laughed when they nearly tripped into each other. When they returned their rhythm, my mother threw her hair back, letting it shake like a blanket as they glided along on beat so perfectly as though choreographed. They caught the attention of the room, even those along the margins who were along the stairwell and in the entryway craned their necks to watch them and see. What we witnessed was Mr. Renoir's lean statuesque form, his back taut and straight, and his hands holding my mother lovingly as though precious in his arms. In addition to this, we witnessed my mother smile seductively. The curves and contours of her body were accents to her being that moved and swallowed the room. She wore a dress that clung tightly to her like a second skin, rising and shifting at the cue of Mr. Renoir's movements. That's beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> do you want to continue? It's oh, up to it's you. just a little bit left. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, my aunt Jocelyn wooed happily and threw a rose from the bouquet on the table at them. When the song began to crescendo to its end, everyone clapped and bellowed at them. Mr. Renoir and my mother looked up and around the room, laughing, shy from the attention, as though just realizing that they were not alone. Mr. Renoir kissed my mother on her cheek, not cheek to cheek, but rather put his lips directly against her face, which made her close her eyes until he pulled them away. He kissed her once more on the back of her hand and brought it up, applauding with everyone else. My mother brought her hands to her face, her ears so red, they looked as if the smallest prickle would make them burst. That's gorgeous. Oh, thank you. <laughs> One of the things that I think you, I remember part of this piece from last year that we read, and this, this part that I've just heard for the first time mm-hmm. is there's a beautiful beautiful intimacy in what you write. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that we're getting a narrator um, who's, she's 16 at this time, but she's an adult looking back mm-hmm. on being 16. Mm-hmm. Um but just the nuances and the world building and the details and like you're giving us a lot of really beautiful texture. Mm-hmm. To the- I always like to, um, when I went, 
when I read, I read and I study. Mm. <laughs> I like to study a lot of writers from, you know, different time periods that wh- whether they're writing about different time periods and it's historical fiction or whether they were right or whether the work mm. is published a very long time ago. Um, so one thing I always love and appreciate about literature is when I'm able to picture it. And I yeah. think that's what's always um, helped me escape in my times when, you know, I was really dealing with a lot. And so when I decided that I wanted to write and develop my own work, I thought mm-hmm. it really important um, that I be able to capture sort of the scene or yeah, the yeah. feeling or, you know, what it is that we're looking at. And also for the description of my characters to sort of permeate something about them yeah. as a character. Yeah. And um, I took a lot of time, especially with the mother character, to really um make her a kind of enigma for the character because to her it's like she feels like she knows her so well but then when you're in your your adult mind you sort of see things differently and she sort of becomes mysterious in certain ways um some that are problematic and some that are you know extremely relative for her um so that was really important for me i kind of always have like images of either a mix of people that i know and a mix of um Mm -hmm. celebrities and a mix of characters that i've admired Mm -hmm. in books um and try to you know sort of have them fit into this kind of uh this kind of being (laughs) i think the one part for me especially i love the um i love the description of the hand moving from the hip to the Mm, the stomach like like a vine (laughs) oh that was gorgeous yeah it says a lot about i don't want to give too much about the book but it says a lot about the mother's um and the mother's uh relationship with um the politician yeah and how he's sort of able to um in a way manipulate her or Mm -hmm. change her in certain ways and Mm -hmm. as a child you're only seeing the physical that's occurring you're not really seeing you know the internal dilemma that's that's happening or sort of the private conversations that they have when she's not in earshot to hear them so she's only really seeing um, you know how her mother and this man physically communicate with each other as opposed to verbally (laughs) I think that was gorgeous though that's such a subtle shift that some people could describe very reporter but you gave it a lot of texture and and also some insight into the character of the mother. Yeah. That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, so you mentioned a little bit about things that influenced you. Do you, when you're doing your own writing, do you have to, can you also be reading? Like, do yeah, the two things conflict I for do. you? I do. A lot of um, writers that I, you know, have as like mentors or that I, you know, have met at like book signings or just even mm-hmm. are at different levels of their career. It's funny, the majority of them don't read when they're writing or when yep. they're working on a particular yep. piece of work. But for me, I feel like reading other work is hydrating. And I try to yeah. read work that is like similar to what it is that I'm doing okay. because I notice when I'm reading things that are sort of off track to my work, it's sort of my writing suffers. So it like if I'm, yeah. yeah. So if I'm struggling with like dialogue, I try to read work that has a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if I'm trying to get imagery right or I'm working on like an ending, I try to get into books that mm-hmm. um, have a similar flow to mine, like where it's more literary or more um, philosophical mm-hmm. in certain ways or more poetic because that's, you know, sort of essentially what I'm trying yep. to do as well. So for me, I, I always like to read, you know, other writers like when I'm and it's usually when I'm in transition, like I'm, you know, on the train on my way somewhere yep. or, you know, before I go to bed and when I wake up, I always like to read a few pages and have that be a part of my day. And then, you know, I get into writing and try to set specific times depending on, you know, when I'm teaching and whatever else. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so some about your writing process. Mm-hmm. Do you um, sit down and sort of pour things out or do you look at it and then edit it or do you mull things over? Like what sort of, what's your process? Yeah, so my process, um, I usually, so right now I'm in the editing process. I finished the book. Um, so now I'm going back and Congratulations. Editing. Thank you. That's amazing <laughs> thank you wow yeah and shopping around for agents so yeah that's the, but I'm in the editing process now um so but when I was you know first drafting the book um I literally had time at night and on the weekends to write mm-hmm. so what I would do is um I have this weird thing where the house has to be clean and for me when the house is dirty particularly the area that I'm working in mm-hmm. I see it as a distraction and it yes. almost impedes my work Sure. Um, so throughout the week, I'll always do little things to try to clean up after myself so that I'm not now with a baby. Oh <laughs> it's God. much harder. But <laughs> um, he has his room. <laughs> so that's kind of, you know, he, cooking crazy right now. You know. But he he sort of gets into the activity and I make it fun for him. But okay. there are times where I kind of have to. Um, I've created a kind of enclave for myself within our apartment so nice. that um, it's like closer to a corner by the window so that that particular area is sectioned off by the sofa and that's my area to write um and he knows not to go in that area and if he does not to like touch anything um but i basically will make a cup of coffee and sort of sit down and you know either play jazz or if i'm doing dialogue because i really struggle with dialogue (laughs) um i don't know if i should reveal that but (laughs) um i try to watch like a lot of documentaries and shows that are predicated on on interviews or like conversational where it's two characters back and forth and that sort of helps me um, get it in gear. Um, but yeah, I just sit and I try to set aside a time at least two hours at a time. That mm-hmm. way I'm really getting into it because sometimes the first 15, 20 minutes can be just trying to remember mm-hmm. where I left off. Yeah. Um, and then on the weekends, I try to do longer days where I'm doing like, I almost treat it like a full work day yeah. where I'll be like, okay, I'm not going to go out to brunch or this barbecue, whatever the case is, because this is my time window to write. So it might be like nine to two um or i could do later in the afternoon and i'll do like a one to seven um or at night depending on what i have planned for the day depending on my son's schedule um and i have a lot of family nearby so they always help me with my son too when i'm you know getting in the writer mode when i've been you know in the thick of it in this process um so yeah and then there are times where i'll like i'll go to like a cafe um but sometimes i find that really distracting depending on if there's you know people there in a full conversation or something um so i usually my my place of preferences usually to write from home yeah (laughs) that's that's dedication too and i think we forget that we all if we're working towards any kind of mission with our writing that it does it's like Mm -hmm. it's treating it like it's work it's job it's definitely a discipline yeah um and having little rituals around it that work for you is Mm -hmm. really important because that also probably creates a and like a a nice little bubble for you to be able to function in Mm -hmm. um 
and finding things that feed that practice. Mm -hmm. Like uh, for me, having the writers group has been good, really great accountability. Yes, and I miss it so much. (laughs) And um, but perhaps taking that time off, knowing that you had that a new job coming Mm -hmm. helped you also focus on what you needed to. So it's like the writers group is there and you use it how you need to. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, like you said, when we come together, it is sort of a collective process. Mm -hmm. I think my first um, year with it, I was super nervous about sharing Mm -hmm. personal stuff. It is very nerve wracking. And having people (laughs) talk about my characters Mm -hmm. because my characters are mine. It's like they belong to me. And it's also the system of like us not being able to speak while others, are conversing and participating in discourse about us while we sit there. It's like, I think that part was really hard for me when I was in the group. Yes, But it was helpful because at least it was able to um, have people read it and process it without our input, you know? So I think that was, as challenging as it was, it was very helpful. (laughs) So my second year with the group has been, I think, even more productive for me because I realized I could take more on as a writer. I could be a little more I could push my edges a little bit mm-hmm. I could be influenced in positive ways by people who write things differently than I do mm-hmm. or like you said I feel like I struggle sometimes with dialogue yeah. so I purposely you know read work or listen to work or watch things on TV that had some really interesting snappy mm-hmm. kind of dialogue yeah. or how how people kind of you know what that flow sounds like mm-hmm. um and then I also took on the um, challenge for myself of being a regular contributor somewhere that yeah. I knew. So I contribute to a, it's another blog online called Kindness Over Matters. Mm. And um, I I write a piece of poetry once a month. Oh, nice. But I always wait till the last minute to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's like it's hard to have that. Um, You know, I tried to do a blog and I was just like, oh, I can't do this. Like I felt like the time um, to try to stay consistent with it is really hard. Even with Instagram, like I I try to do book recommendations on a weekly basis, but it really gets hard to keep up with it. And, you know, it's usually someone messaged me like, oh, I like the books that you recommended. I'm like, you know, I got to put another recommendation out. But I am one of those people mm-hmm. that cannot read and write mm-hmm. so oh, I started yeah. following you on Instagram just because I wanted to see what you were recommending <laughs> but it's also this way of like having some recommendations out there mm-hmm. by someone who I really enjoy that your perspective <laughs> but it also then is not me like buying books that will sit on my yeah. bedside table oh, and yes, make me I feel guilty because I'm not reading them I know those books I don't recommend the ones that are like either have been on my um, to read shelf for so long or that I read and hated. Mm-hmm. I tend to not want to do that to another writer, especially <laughs> if they're living, <laughs> because I would hate for it to be done to me. <laughs> so, Is there anything that you've um, read recently that you were surprised by that you were like, I, I didn't think I was going to like, but I ended up liking? Um, let me think. Um, I would have to say which book that I started and didn't know, think I would like. Oh, I just finished Warlight by Michael Andache. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, I didn't know that if I would like it because he had another book before that that was a bit strange to me. Um, But 
the premise of this particular book, I, you know, read the jacket and I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And it's sort of relative to what I'm writing, which is about, um, you know, the sort of frayed relationship between mm -hmm. parent and child. Um, and I read it and recently finished it and I really loved it. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't tend to like books that deal with like um, that take place during like talk about war and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but this was actually done extremely well um so that book was really was really excellent that i was sort of surprised by and then you know ended up enjoying <laughs> it's funny because i tend to be a summer reader like mm -hmm. i'm a, i tend uh, falling into a pattern where i'm doing way more writing and editing in the winter time not as much reading but do you read nonfiction as well as fiction do yeah you? i do i read a lot of fiction and that's a lot of the times what i recommend but i do read a some nonfiction depending on what it is um, one nonfiction book that I read recently was a memoir by uh, Roxane Gay called Hunger. Oh, that's gorgeous. Oh, my goodness. I read it. It was absolutely riveting. I mean, I love her work, particularly like her. I haven't read Bad Feminist yet, but I did read um, IET and um, Difficult Women. Mm -hmm. um, both of those were excellent, excellent. Um, but I read Hunger um, because she had been on This American Life mm. and she was talking. It was a particular episode about... Um, about body image mm. and uh she was on there and it was a very small um uh it was a very small part of the episode but yeah. i remember her talking a little bit about the book when it was still in development and mm. the minute it came out i went to get it and it was just so wonderful i i always adore her writing but it was basically in detail about her relationship with food mm -hmm. and her body and emotion and society and her family yeah. um, and trauma. And it was just, it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful memoir. Yeah. Eve Ensler had a really great show. It was called The Good Body. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a lot about um, body image and um, it was funny and it was poignant mm -hmm. and it was um, how she was viewing herself and then how she was viewing her aging body and aging body as a public figure mm -hmm. and then um i don't remember why but she went i, I want to say she went to one of the countries in africa where mm -hmm. body shape and sizes looked at very differently yeah and it's she, like a scene as a symbol of wealth and yeah. she was in some circle with a bunch of women and they were telling stories and they were re re like reveling in mm -hmm. the fact that they had these bodies that had curves and stomachs <laughs> and that's where i need to move <laughs> <laughs> and I, and she was like it was very it was like it was very it was really beautifully done and i just thought you know mm -hmm. we don't we don't celebrate we're always looking for the thing that we think other people have yeah and we don't realize that perhaps you know your lovely body someone else is looking at that and saying that's what i like that's mm. the that's the enviable curves that yeah. i want it's like or, we always look at what we want to attain rather yes. than what we have it's yes. definitely um yes. a part of like the human identity for many of us even as much right. as we want to be self-assured we'll always look like oh you know i wish my career was at this level or right. i wish i looked like this i want the thing this. that they have right yeah. right yeah <laughs> so how do you um how do you 
raise a son with those ideals in mind mm. around, you know, how he views himself as well as perhaps how he would view I would others. It, that's the thing. It's like I feel like being a new mom, it's all learning as I go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, because I know that I definitely, you know, I come from a very loving family, but I do come from a family who um, there have been times where it was either myself or, you know, other members of my family where, you know, especially as women, there's yeah. definitely a standard that we try to attain. Yeah. And that is based on basically on society. So like they have a saying for when you're skinny and it's almost like as, as much to like America in the United States, it's like a woman that's very, very slim and, and skinny. It's like, oh, she's great looking and a model. But in our country, it's a sign of, of, um, of deprivation and almost like, oh, wow. oh, maybe she's not doing as well because she's not thick. But when a woman does have curves, it's like it has to be the right curves. Like, you know, there's definitely this pressure, especially after having children to slim down and to sort of have curves, but not have the belly like the belly is huge for them. And I remember maybe a few days after having my son, I ran into a aunt at the grocery store and you know once you have a child your body is still constricting and trying to get yeah. recalibrated from yeah. carrying you know yeah. he was nine nine pounds almost oh, a, a nine pound human being and so I was running in probably to get like milk and bread something very basic and I ran into an aunt and the first thing she said to me you know before even asking about the baby and the delivery was you didn't wrap your stomach how come she and she like felt my stomach and I was because there's this basically this ritual of stomach wrapping to sort of um, contain and and get back the the waist mm -hmm. definition. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being so I wasn't even um, emotional about it. I was just upset, almost like you know I literally pushed out a human being. Leave me alone. <laughs> it was very. It was a lot of pressure to like. Um, and I talk about that in the novel actually. That idea of one of the aunts ends up um, having a baby and the character learns of this ritual that we've done or certain families I wouldn't say all Haitians do it but yeah. you know it's definitely been talked about you know sort of as a cultural and conversation thing of, of stomach wrapping after giving birth so that mm -hmm. you can maintain the waist definition or the image that um, that is a show it's just so many things yeah, <laughs> yeah so much pressure <laughs> it's, and it's true like you're mm. um, one of the things that I've been re-watching I like to re-watch shows yeah. I'm kind of uh, addicted to different shows. I've been rewatching Mad Men. Oh, Mad Men. That's it. Yeah. And, the, and <laughs> Very uh, Joan's character. Mm -hmm. So Joan is just gorgeous. Yeah. But she, I can't even imagine her existing in 2019 yeah. and being able to walk right. down the street on encumbered right, right but also like you know that actress owning her curves mm -hmm. and that character in that series over the 60s and the 70s right and like, even just like about her role at the time because she um was essentially like a single woman who in yes. some ways was sexually liberated but yes. in others was sort of contained yes and it was just a lot of pressure of her wanting to um you know be sexy for herself right as a but it automatically was would get a lot of attention from the men 
and right. and then also eventually when she became a single mother and right. like that um, just all of the things that was associated with her character is definitely there was a lot of great character development from that show but her character in particular I found really interesting and yeah she would not be able to exist now like, or, just or this idea that like just because she has the figure that she does meant something yeah like yeah. Mm-hmm. because she had boobs and because she didn't try to hide them or squish them down mm-hmm. and because she had hips and because she didn't try to hide them or squish them in or yeah. whatever that she I'm in the point in the series now I think where so she's just moved to the large agency McCann Erickson has bought them up mm-hmm. and uh, she goes and she's an account executive which mm-hmm. was unheard of right, right or then an, an attractive woman be an account <laughs> executive yeah god god you know forbid mm-hmm. and now she's had an issue with someone kind of messing with one of her accounts so she goes to the mm. the big guy and the big guy's like oh of course we can travel together because you know I want to get to know oh, you and God. basically he's saying yeah. like of course I'm just going to sleep with you because um, of the way you look and it still happens today it still We're happens like, yeah, today there's that um, it's almost like this thing of like well at least you're pretty when you get harassed and yes it's very um, upsetting and that we are in 2019 yeah and and our value is being put to that as opposed to what it is that we can actually produce. And it's so interesting because Roxanne Gay and Hunger talks about that yeah. a lot. And um, just with her, um, it, it's a lot about food or at least about eating and about consumption yep. and yep. how she wraps that into um, trauma and sort of it, it being an answer to something um, within her, like a yeah. sort of to feed a pain. Yeah. Um, but for many women that sort of, you know, have these issues, especially like as a black woman like we're definitely seen in society as either like um one extreme or another whether right. it's like being overly sexualized or being like or within or sometimes even within our community not being sexual enough or right. it's just it's a lot of pressure from like all sides <laughs> but it's you know it's a wonderful celebration too of our different um if our different features i don't want to make it seem like um you know because i'm a thick woman and you know being that you know i have these proportions it does sometimes get me unwanted attention yeah, yeah. um and at yeah. the same times it's that it's something that I don't always um, I don't always love and then you always hear the pressure of like from other people that you know that want the proportion it's like do you know how much I spend on bras (laughs) like you know so it's you know it's it's sort of like it's it's a complicated thing it's very it's such a complex thing like I you know, mm-hmm. I've I've written about it and continue to write about it, mm-hmm. and um, I talk about it and I blog about it, and um, I got into coaching because of it. So mm-hmm. I I do health and wellness and life coaching on the side, oh, and awesome. majority of the clients that I talk to are like, I want to lose weight, yeah. and then we talk about why, yeah, and then we talk about if that's really the goal, like how you do that holistically in a way that you're sleeping enough, you're feeding mm-hmm. your passion. You've got, you know, good relationship with yourself. Yeah. How you're kind of managing food and exercise. I don't even say exercise because I hate that word, but movement. <laughs> know, like how, how you move. Right, right. And then how you treat treat yourself and mm-hmm. and the kind of what things are realistic. And it's the thing that always reminds me 
to do those things for myself. Yeah. It's because... like, it's all about like what makes you happy. Cause some people, I kind of have issue with when they're like, Oh, I need to lose weight for my wedding or I want to lose weight for a vacation mm. or, you know, I want to lose weight because to save my marriage for some people mm. or like, I, I, and I kind of feel like our body is a kind of map and a temple in a way. Yes. So like, you know, to to wrap it in this, um, oh, I need to be this size or I need to yep. be this weight. I used to be wrapped up in that a lot, especially when, yeah. you know, I was much heavier. And I kind of started to see like, okay, you only live once. You know, I've had yes. friends that have not seen their 30th birthday and have passed away before that. And even my own mother, my own mother died when she was 33. Oh um, but she was somebody that, you know, loved cooking, loved a good meal and it made her happy and being yeah. around people that made her happy. And, um, you know, I always kind of look at her as like this inspiration to like living my life to the fullest. So yeah. like, even though I shouldn't eat that pizza, I'm craving that pizza and I want it and I'm going to have it, right. <laughs> you know, right, have it right, at the table. Right. You know, so it's like, it's kind of like you only get this one life, this one, you know, this I, one time. <laughs> I, I've known of Roxanne's book mm -hmm. and I've read excerpts of it, but I haven't read the whole thing. And, and per, perhaps also because it's like a subject very close to home mm -hmm. for me. So sometimes I find, I find that stuff can be triggering, mm. but it also is, it's helpful. So I have to mm -hmm. sort of be in the right frame of mind to read it. But yeah. when you struggle with any kind of food or weight issue, it's, um, it can be all consuming. Oh yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I've gone through periods of time where I've been thinner. I've gone through periods of time where I've worked more consistently on it. Mm. Um, you know, I'm at a point now where I'm, I'm the heaviest I have been for a while. Mm -hmm. So I struggle with like, you know, how I feel about myself, but it, one of the things I have been conscious about is that I'm not sitting at home hiding mm, myself. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I may not. It's like the psyche of the body. Yes. yes. I may not look necessarily the way that my mind thinks I want to look mm -hmm. or that, you know, I'm looking for a thinner face or like less thick legs or whatever it is, mm -hmm. but, um, it's not going to stop me from being out there and talking to people right. and connecting and living your life and too. living my yeah. life or eating or being seen out in public yes. eating. Like that's another thing yeah. when, that, that, um, I know folks struggle with and I've struggled with is that mm -hmm. when you're of a certain size, when you're out in public <laughs> seen eating, you have to be, or feel like you have to be demure about it mm -hmm. or not order the big thing yeah. or not like perhaps order pizza because <laughs> nobody wants to see if, like yeah. and I'm speaking for myself the fat girl eating pizza mm. like you know there's that heavy judgment yeah. that you put on yourself but you kind of have to like sort of explore that and then rip it open yes like for me it was definitely doing that with um having lost my mother young and dealing with that the trauma of that and I would before before I started this work, I would stand clear of literature that dealt with parent loss because mm. it was so yeah. triggering for me yeah. um, until I started my piece. And I was like, OK, I kind of have to dive into this and really explore this. And um, it took a lot of therapy, too. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but um, a big part of it was exploring literature that dealt with a subject that was very difficult for me to um, to approach. And a book that I read recently that I absolutely love, like I haven't 
cried reading a book in like ever. But I've read uh, recently um, The End of Loneliness by Benedict Wells. And it is such such a beautiful book. You is it fiction or not? It's fiction. Um, and it's basically about uh, a young boy named uh, Jules um, who's uh, growing up. Um, and he has two older siblings, a brother and a sister. And the descriptions are just so like you read the book and you're like, oh, my God, I wish I could write this. Or I wish I knew these people like it's just so rich and they literally come off the page. Mm-hmm. I think I read it in a day and a half. That's how good it was. Wow. Um, but it was a very hard book to read emotionally because it dealt with parent loss and that the main character, Jules, uh, they lose their parents in a in a terrible accident in the beginning of the book. And so the rest of the book is about them sort of um, detaching and coming together. Mm-hmm. And dealing with the the profound pain of that loss, um, and reading the book, it was very very difficult, especially in the scenes where you know the things that I knew well, where sometimes you would come across a photograph or a letter or a card or a piece of clothing of theirs, and it would just sort of erupt as if yeah. the funeral had been that morning. And there was definitely scenes of that, or that their loss had manifested in different ways for to the children as they were growing up, yeah, and yeah. sort of um, you know the the paths that they took and sort of the decisions that they made in ways that they were sabotaging themselves or, yeah. you know, their successes were, were based and wrapped on this trauma that had sort of mm-hmm. severed their childhood and their innocence. And it was just, it was such a hard book to read, but then it, I came to this realization um, about myself and, you know, the experience of losing my mother mm-hmm. and that it was definitely something that I would have to face in order to heal from it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a, have you ever read, um, Shrill by Lindy West. I heard of it. I haven't read it though. I'm. I have it on my list. And then there's a show too on yes. Hulu. Yes. I, I purposely signed up for Hulu just for that because <laughs> I love Aidy Bryant, anyways. And I heard. I think she was on Terry Gross mm. talking about um, mm. adapting the the book and yeah. some of the stories. Mm-hmm. It's a. She has just a wonderful voice mm-hmm. um, in in the book, and it's a lot about. Yeah, kind of like being like, I'm not going to wait until I'm thin and to have a relationship. The book is gorgeous yeah. and it's um, mm-hmm. it's super funny mm-hmm. and it's a great read. It's very empowered. Right like you feel empowered <laughs> yeah. after reading yeah. it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just in terms of final mm-hmm. thoughts, do you have anything you'd like to share? Um, anything I, coming up? Anything uh, other than keep reading, read a lot, people. <laughs> um, follow, follow oh, Viola yes. on Instagram. <laughs> She's got great recommendations for books. Yes. I'm always on Instagram. I do. I do book recommendations at least once a week. Sometimes I'll spoil friends and do two <laughs> recommendations in a week. Um, it's a mix of uh, literature. Sometimes I do memoirs and nonfiction um, but most of it is fiction and I do uh, stuff from that's been out of print things that have been translations uh, contemporary fiction that's come out as recent as last month um, so definitely uh, follow me at uh, writer underscore bay underscore vv um, on Instagram and I'll also um, probably have some other articles coming up on Medium as well <laughs> Do you have and any shout outs to I'm sure the mm-hmm. multiple family members 
listeners <laughs> and whatever here in your community that would probably listening to your podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, shout out to my lovely son, Julian, who's Aww. at swimming right now <laughs> with his dad. Um, and also just shout out to my wonderful parents, my mom and my um, stepmom and my dad who have just been, you know, really wonderful on this journey. And my brothers, my sister. Um, and just, yeah, I love them. We're looking, <laughs> looking forward to seeing your book in print. And, <laughs> Thank um, you. And maybe hearing you read some excerpts somewhere out yeah. about maybe yeah so I'm in the process now um, trying to find a literary agent to get representation and mm-hmm. um, hopefully get published this summer um, and then I'll try to do probably some more like local events and maybe do like a reading yes um, yes and I'll definitely That'd be awesome. uh, keep you updated on that sounds yeah. good <laughs> and I hope to see you back in the Malden Writers Collaborative next yes season. I will be returning I, I okay. must it gives me that discipline and that support and yep I'll be and we need your there. voice in the group for too. Me. <laughs> we need all kinds yes. of women coming to the group. Yes, definitely. We need that female I'll bring, energy. I'll try to bring a female with you too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being Thank on High Felicia so today. Much, Felicia. <laughs> and sometimes my guests say, Hi Felicia. Hi Felicia. Hi Felicia. Bye Felicia. Bye Felicia. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm.